Our topic and text for tonight is out of the book of Zechariah, and uh, we've done the book of Zechariah. We did uh, the 14 chapters, actually in about 16 or 17 or something ser sermons, uh, covering the entire book, verse by verse. Uh, but today I want to kind of go do an overview of the book, specifically looking at the verses that give us a picture of the Messiah, that demonstrate the Messiah to us, that show us the Messiah. And so he's seen here in this chapter as prophet, Kohen, and, or rather, yeah, prophet, Kohen, and king, as, or other, another way of saying the same thing, servant, judge, and lord. But before we get into those specific verses scattered out of, there's 14 chapters, but we'll look at verses out of about nine out of those chapters, about 20 or so verses. But before we do that, uh, I want to show you a, a video of a outline overview of the entire book in sketch form. Kind of uh, enjoyable to do. The book of the prophet Zechariah. The book is set after the return of the exiles from Babylon to Jerusalem. And we're told in the book of Ezra that Zechariah and Haggai together challenged and motivated the people to rebuild the temple and look for the fulfillment of God's promises. Now long ago, Jeremiah the prophet had said that Israel's exile would last for 70 years and that afterwards God would restore his presence to a new temple and bring his kingdom and the rule of the Messiah over all nations. The dates at the beginning of this book tell us that those 70 years are almost up. But life back in the land was hard and it seemed like none of these promises were going to come true. Why? And the book of Zechariah offers an explanation. It has a fairly clear design. There's an introduction which sets the tone for a large collection of Zechariah's dream visions. And that's concluded by chapters 7 and 8. And then this is followed by two more large collections of poetry and prophecy. Let's just dive in and see how the book works. It begins with Zechariah's challenge to his generation to turn back to God and not be like their ancestors who rebelled and refused to listen to the earlier prophets, which landed them in exile. And so now the returned exiles respond positively to Zechariah. They repent and humble themselves before God, or so it seems. The next large section is a collection of eight nighttime visions that Zechariah experienced. And just to prepare you, these are full of very bizarre, strange images, a lot like your dreams. The idea that God communicates to people through symbolic dreams, it's very old. It goes back to the book of Genesis. The dreams of Jacob or Joseph or Pharaoh, these gave meaning to current events at the time, but they also gave a window into the future. And so Zechariah has his own dreams now, and they've been arranged in this really cool symmetrical design. The first and the last visions are about four horsemen each. They're like rangers patrolling the world on God's behalf, and it's a representation of God's attentive watch over the nations. Their report is that the world is at peace. And in Zechariah's day, this refers to how God raised up Persia to conquer Babylon and bring peace. And so the question now arises, the 70 years of Israel's exile are almost up, is now the time for the messianic kingdom in Jerusalem? And God responds by saying that he's determined to fulfill those promises, but he leaves the question of timing unanswered. The second and seventh visions are paired because they're both reflections on Israel's past sin that led up to the exile. So the second vision is about these horns that symbolize the nations that attacked and then scattered Israel, Assyria and Babylon. But then these horns or empires are themselves scattered by a group of blacksmiths, an image for Persia. The seventh dream is about a woman in a basket and we're told that she's a symbol of the centuries of Israel's covenant rebellion. And then this woman is carried off to Babylon by other women who 
Carry the basket flying with stork wings. This is so strange. The third and sixth visions are paired as they're both about the rebuilding of a new Jerusalem. So a man is measuring the city. It's an image of God's promise that Jerusalem will be rebuilt and become a beacon to the nations who will join God's people in worship. And then the sixth dream is about a scroll that flies around the new Jerusalem punishing thieves and liars. The idea being that the new Jerusalem is a place that's purified from sin by the scriptures. The fourth and fifth visions are at the center of this collection, and they're about the two key leaders among the returned exiles. So Joshua, the high priest, and then Zerubbabel, the royal descendant of David. So Joshua had been symbolically wearing Israel's sin in the form of these dirty clothes, but then those are taken off and he's given new clothes and a new turban, a symbol of God's grace and forgiveness. And then an angel tells Joshua that if he remains faithful to God, he will lead his people and Joshua will become a symbol of the future messianic king. The other vision is about two olive trees that supply oil to this elaborate gold lamp, which itself is a symbol of God's watchful eye over his people. And these two trees symbolize the two anointed leaders, Joshua and then Zerubbabel, who's leading the temple rebuilding efforts. And God says that success will not come to this new temple if it's the result only of political maneuvering. Rather, these two leaders must be dependent upon the work of God's spirit. The visions come to a close with a bonus vision from the prophet, and it picks up the themes of the central fourth and fifth visions. It's Joshua, the high priest again, and he's given a crown and presented as a symbol of the future Messiah who will also be a priest over God's kingdom. And then Zechariah closes it all out saying that all of these visions will be fulfilled only if the current generation is faithful to God and obeys the terms of the covenant. And so altogether, these three visions emphasize how the coming of the messianic kingdom is conditional upon this generation being faithful to God. Which leads to the conclusion of the dreams. It's another challenge from Zechariah. And a group of Israelites come and they've been mourning over the former temple's destruction for nearly 70 years. And they ask him, is it time to stop grieving? I mean, is God's kingdom going to come very soon? And Zechariah again reminds them of how their ancestors rejected God's call through the prophets, which led to the exile. And so he challenges them too. He says, this generation will see the messianic kingdom only if they pursue justice and peace and remain faithful to the covenant. So in other words, Zechariah reverses their question. He asks, are you going to become the kind of people who are ready to receive and participate in God's coming kingdom? And that question is left just hanging there. The people don't answer and the book just moves on. And so we come to the final sections that are very different from chapters one to eight. Each section is a kaleidoscopic collage of poems and images about the future messianic kingdom. So the first one, chapters nine to 11, describe the coming of the humble messianic king who's riding a donkey into the new Jerusalem to establish God's kingdom over the nations. But then all of a sudden, this king, he's symbolized as a shepherd over the flock of Israel, and then he's rejected first by his own people, but then also by their leaders who are also symbolized as shepherds. And so God hands Israel over to these corrupt shepherds and it raises the question, will Israel's rejection of their king last forever? In the final section, chapters 12 to 14, say no. It's another mosaic of poems and images about the future messianic kingdom. And they depict the new Jerusalem as a place where God's justice will finally confront and defeat evil among the nations. It's very similar to the same themes in prophet Joel or Ezekiel. 
But then God also will confront the rebellion within the hearts of his own people. He's going to pour out his spirit on them, he says, so that they can repent and grieve over the fact that they have rebelled and rejected their messianic shepherd. The final chapter concludes with the new Jerusalem as the gathering point for all of the nations. And then this city becomes a new garden of Eden and there's a river of living water flowing out of the temple bringing healing to all of creation and that's how the book ends. And so Zechariah just leaves you to ponder the connection between chapters 1 through 8 and 9 to 14. And the point seems to be that this future messianic kingdom of the book's second half will only come when God's people are faithful to the covenant the point of the first half. Reading the book of Zechariah is a wild ride. These visions and poems are full of startling imagery and they do not follow a linear flow of thought. And that's part of the point. It's like history and our lives. It doesn't always fit into neat orderly patterns. But the prophets offer us glimpses of God's hand at work guiding history towards his own purposes. And so ultimately Zechariah invites us to look above the chaos and hope for the coming of God's kingdom which should motivate faithfulness in the present. And that's what the book of Zechariah is all about. Okay, all right, that was kind of a quick uh, overview. It took us uh, 17 weeks to do. <laughs> um, now you kind of left it there with a few ifs, if and it ends there. But we do know from history that they were a great generation. That Zerubbabel did come through, that uh, Yeshua son of Jehoshadak was faithful, and they had peace in the land for over 50 years. We don't hear any of the prophets show up to them uh, for again, about 50 years till Ezra comes on the scene. And they do build the temple and they do re uh, ignite the worship and, and the service of the Lord. And so they were a righteous generation for their time. And then we'll see, we'll get into Ezra eventually, the rest of the second part of Ezra. Um, and uh, you see there was some falling, but then Ezra comes and, and, revive, and, and revival takes place very quickly thereafter again. Okay, so now back to Zechariah and this now overview focusing specifically on the Messiah. And so we won't really be covering the same stuff he did, but totally a different kind of rain lane. Uh, and it won't, we won't be going in order through the books, we'll be going somewhat in order of the life of the Messiah. And so we'll start off in chapter 12, verse one. Thus says the Lord, who stretches out the heavens, lays the foundation of the earth, and forms the spirit of man within him. So Zechariah makes it very clear, the Lord speaking through him, that God is the creator. He's the creator of all things, going all the way back to the very beginning, that he laid the foundations, he set up the earth, that he set up man, that he put his spirit within man. Very similar to what we see described in the book of Genesis and in other places, many other places in the scripture, that our Lord is our creator. And as we look at these various texts, any part that you needing him to be, we're going to see several different attributes and characteristics and roles of God and whichever one you're needing. If you're needing him to create in you a clean heart, if you're needing him to renew you and to start things fresh in you, to build you up, then claim him as your creator as we continue on. In chapter 2, verse 8, For thus says the Lord of hosts, who sent me after glory, to the nations which spoiled you, he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. For behold, I will shake my hand against them, and they shall become spoil for their servants. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. And we did this chapter, and there's a lot in here. 
I got the part where it says, he who touches you touches the apple of his eye, and that's a beautiful text, and we covered that in depth, and if you missed that sermon, you can go back and see it in shalomadventure.com, in the archive, just type in Zechariah chapter 2, and, and, and it'll bring it up uh, in the search within shalomadventure.com. Uh, but if that's what you're needing and you're grabbing a hold of that, yes, Lord, I've got people who are harassing me, thankful that I am the apple of your eye, that I am precious in your sight, and so protect me as, as I would protect my eyes, have your protection over me. But again, our focus here for today is on these verses concerning the Messiah. And in this particular set, series of verses, we see we have some blue text and some yellow text, and it's very clearly two different beings that are spoken about here. For thus says the Lord of hosts, so the Lord of hosts is speaking, so we have the Lord of hosts, um, or rather referred to, the Lord of hosts is being referred to, who sent me, right? So we have the Lord of hosts, second person, being referred to, and we have me speaking in the first person. So the Lord of hosts sends this me who's speaking here in this chapter. He sent him after glory, and he touches you, touches the apple of his eye, second person. For behold, I will shake my hand, first person, the yellow, against them, and they shall be spoiled for their servants. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts, second person, this Lord, who is the Lord of hosts, has sent me. So we have these two beings, and we're going to see they parallel as we continue on with these verses. But there's definitely two different beings referred to here. Really can't miss that, right? And say the Lord of hosts came himself, says, no, the Lord of hosts sent me. So you have the Lord of hosts, and you have the one that was sent. And the Lord of hosts has sent me. So continuing in this chapter 2, verse 10, Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I am coming, first person, I will dwell in your midst, says the Lord. Many nations shall be joined to the Lord in that day, and they shall become my people, and I will dwell in your midst, and then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. So again, we have in the blue, the Lord of hosts, and in the yellow, we have this one who says he's coming, and that he's going to dwell in our midst, and then he refers to himself as the Lord. I am coming, says the Lord. So we have the Lord of hosts, and we have this also Lord who is coming, who will dwell in our midst. They are co-equal lords. They are one. They are united one. They are joined as one, yet two beings. One the Lord of hosts, one the one who comes, the one who dwells with us. Says it twice, I dwell in your midst. Refers to himself as I and me. Co-equal, eternal partners in the family of God in the unity of God, in the Godhead, in the singular God family. The Lord God is one in this unity that he holds. Chapter 6, verse 12. Then speak to him, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold the man whose name is the branch, and from his place he shall branch out, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. Yes, he shall build the temple of the Lord. He shall bear the glory and shall sit and rule on his throne. And he shall be a Kohen and his throne on his throne. And the council of peace shall be between them both. In order to have a both, how many do you have to have to have both? Two. 
You have to have two. And we got two here. What are the two? Well, it's again mentioned here. The Lord of hosts again, and the one who gets sent, who becomes the man. Referred to as the man, the one who comes, the one who dwells among us, as a man. Who's also referred to as a branch, who reaches out, who branches out, who gives shade, who gives strength, who can be leaned upon, who can be hung upon, who can be uh, trusted upon, who bears fruit, this branch that reaches out. And this branch sits on a throne as a Kohen. And we'll get to that. So we see here that he is the creator. He is the Lord. He is the man who dwells among us, who has come. And at that point in Zechariah's day was coming, in our day had come. And he is a Kohen as well. So he came as a man, he came as a prophet, but he also is a Kohen, also is a priest, and sits on a throne, and there is this peace, council of peace, between them both. There's a council of peace between them both because they are united together. Right? Like Adam and Eve, the two shall become one flesh, united together as one. Unity between them both. A covenant, a promise of peace between them both. If they won't separate, they won't disagree, they're united in motive, in heart, in mind, in purpose, in desire, in goals, working together. Chapter 3, verse 8. Hear, O Yeshua, the Kohen Gadol. And we'll get back to this, who Yeshua is in the next frame. You and your companions who sit before you, for they are a wondrous sign, for behold, I am bringing forth my servant, the branch. So again, branch, branch, this man who became a branch, this man who's referred to as a branch, is also our servant. He's become my servant. God's servant, the Lord of hosts' servant. So he comes and he comes as a man, and he comes, what type of man? He comes as a servant man. He comes as a prophet man. He comes as a suffering servant for us. He comes to us. He comes to minister to us. He becomes one with us. He comes in tabernacles with us, in our flesh, in our nature, with our troubles, with our heartaches, with our needs, as you and I go through this life. This is the Messiah. And again, whatever part applies to you, if you're needing him to be your servant, if you're needing him to meet your needs, if you're needing some help right now, as he promised, he will meet all your needs according to his riches and glory. Then as we go on, you just cry out and pray, Lord, meet my needs. Help me, serve me, take care of me. Lift me up, encourage me. I need help. Or if you're needing him to be the man, to stand there with you, to stand beside you, to know your suffering, to help you in your time of need, to comfort you, to cry with you, to rejoice with you, to be your friend, he is the man. If you're needing him to be a branch, you're needing a shade over you, you're needing fruit provided for you, you're needing the gifts of the Spirit, you're needing someone you can rely on, someone you can lean on, someone you can hang your weight upon, he is the branch set out for you. If you need a Kohen, you need someone to intercede for you, you need someone to get forgiveness for you, to stand in your behalf between you and the Father, someone to Pray for you. He is praying for you. He is interceding right now as our Kohen Gadol. 
praying for us, pleading his blood in our behalf. If you're needing forgiveness of sins, if you're needing the mercy of God, claim him as your Kohen. He has many roles, many hats. That's why there's not one name that he can be limited down to. That's why the scriptures refer to him in so many different ways. And here in just this one book already, we've seen so many different ways, so many different roles that he has played in our behalf as our creator, as our Lord, as our friend, as our co-equal with God, and then becoming co-equal with us. One who comes to us, walking in the garden with Adam and Eve, coming to them, he's come to us, to walk with us, to walk in our shoes, to know our paths, to know our ways, to know our troubles. He is our branch. He is our servant. He is our friend. Zechariah chapter 6, verse 11. Take the silver and gold and make an elaborate crown and set it on the head of Yeshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the Kohen Gadol. Now back in Zechariah's day, there was a literal Yeshua, the son of Jehoshadak, who was the Kohen Gadol. Very faithful man. Wonderful promises in Zechariah to him. And by God's grace, they were fulfilled in him and by him. He has a wonderful name. Yeshua, foreshadowing the Yeshua, the Messiah who would come and tabernacle with us. Yeshua meaning salvation. So here is our salvation, Yeshua, and he's the son of Jehoshadak, which literally means the righteous God. So he is the Savior who is the son of the righteous God. That's who this man represented. That's who this man foreshadowed who was a man, but who was also in the role as the Kohen Gadol, the high priest. And he has this special crown, an elaborate crown that's placed upon him. A priestly crown and a kingly crown. He is like Melchizedek, a priest king. So Messiah playing these three roles of the prophet, the priest, and the king. Different times. His first coming, he came as a prophet, suffering servant for us, coming in the flesh, tabernacling among us, dwelling among us. He is currently right now as the Kohen in our behalf, pleading his blood, praying for us, interceding for us, granting for mercy, granting forgiveness. And he will come a second time as that priest judge. And then he will also come a third time as king. Chapter 8, verse 2, referring to his first coming and how he came. The Lord of the heavenly armies says, Ten men of all the languages of the nations will grab a hold of one Jewish person by the hem of his garment and say, Let us go with you, for we heard that God is with you. Now, it's not exactly the word Emmanuel, but it's similar. It's uh, Elohim. Um, God referring, and then a version of uh, im, the with, with you, Emmanuel, I think, but uh, it's this similar phrase, two different words instead of the one word, Emmanuel, but he is with us, the God who is with us. 
as a Jewish man, as a Jewish person, coming in the flesh for us, the Lord of the heavenly hosts. Now, heavenly armies says. So again, you have the Lord of hosts saying that the people from all nations, Jews and Gentiles together will grab a hold of this Jewish man, this Jewish Messiah, this one who is the branch, who branches out, who reaches out around the world, who has come as a man, who has come as a servant. People will grab a hold of him and follow him and not let go. Grab a hold of his talit, grab a hold of his garment and will follow him because God is with him. Grab a hold of him. Lean upon him. Follow him. Let him give you direction. Let him give you purpose. Let him give you healing. Let him meet your every need. Zechariah 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. The one who was creator, the one who was king, the one who was co-equal with the Lord of hosts has come to you as a man, lowly, riding on a donkey, on a foal of a, cor of a, a colt, having salvation with him. There again is Yeshua. His name is right there in the text again. Coming with his salvation. If you're needing salvation, if you haven't received his salvation, if you haven't received the promise of eternal life, if you haven't received the forgiveness of sins, if there's something weighing on your heart and mind, some guilt, some burden, something from the past, something from the present, some sin that hasn't been washed away, something that hasn't been confessed and forsaken, even as we continue on, accept his salvation. Accept his deliverance in your life. Save you from the bondage of sin. Save you from the habits of this world. He has come to you lowly and riding on a donkey. So a prophetic verse fulfilled in the life of Yeshua, riding into Jerusalem over the Mount of Olives, looking down upon the city, seeing the temple and the sun shining on it. Chapter 11, verse 12. And I said to them, if it is agreeable to you, give me my wages, and if not, refrain. So they weighed out for my wages 30 pieces of silver. And again, fulfillment of prophecy, he's betrayed by one of his own, by one of his friends, for 30 pieces of silver. He came to be with us, to dwell with us. If you've been betrayed, if you've been let down, if you've been sold out, Your company has laid you off, saved some money. Someone made some promise to you and ripped you off. Promised to do work and didn't do it right, took the money anyway. Someone has betrayed you. We have a Messiah who understands. A Messiah who's walked with us. Who knows our suffering. And knows our trials. Verse 13, same chapter, chapter 11. 
The Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, that princely price they set on me. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter, for the potter. Another fulfillment of prophecy, Judas, who sold him out for the 30 pieces of silver, one of his disciples throws it into the temple in betrayal of his friend, of his Lord, of his Messiah. But it's not just 30 pieces of silver only, but it was a princely price. This king who lowered himself as the son of the righteous God, who came lowly riding on a donkey, who is also a prince, and had a princely price paid for him. A ransom paid for him, as he paid the price for us as he died in our behalf. As the life continues on here in the last days and last moments of his life here on earth as the man who dwelt among us. Chapter 13, verse 7, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who is my companion, says the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. And in direct fulfillment of the prophecy, he was the shepherd was stricken, and the sheep did scatter. But here again, he's referred to as the man. He's referred to as the shepherd. He's referred to as the Lord of Hosts' companion. So he's the companion to the Lord of Hosts. And he is our companion as well. He is our servant, and he's also our shepherd. A shepherd to guide and direct the sheep. If you're needing guidance in your life right now, maybe you're between areas, maybe you're between jobs, maybe you're between relationships, maybe you're between living situations, maybe a change in your life is taking place, maybe the kids are growing up and moving out of the house, maybe you're just getting kids, maybe you're just getting married, some change is taking place in your life. And you're needing direction, you're needing guidance, what's the next step, what's the next door, which way should I go, what decision should I make? Maybe you need a new car. Maybe you need a new vacuum cleaner. You need direction. God, direct me. Show me which way. What should I do? He is the shepherd. He guides over the sheep. Helps us to avoid the poisons of this world. Leads us in the good pastures. Leads us beside the still waters. He is our good shepherd. He is our companion. As he is the companion of the Lord of hosts. He is the man. Stands there in our behalf as our friend, as our spouse, who had the sword against him and who received the strike, the whip, the piercings, and the abuse. And in Zechariah 12, verse 10, I will pour on the house of David, on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they have pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. And as in fulfillment of prophecy, after he was abused, after he was killed, after he was whipped and stricken down, God's spirit came upon us. And we grieved for the one whom we had pierced. 
Peter went out on Shavuos and preached to 3,000, more than 3,000 people. The son of glory whom you have killed. And they cried out, what must we do to be saved? What must we do to receive salvation? Repent and be baptized for the remission of sins, for the forgiveness of sins, for the removal of sins, and to receive the Holy Spirit. And that day, 3,000 people were immersed. They looked upon him whom they had pierced, and they mourned for him as one mourns for his only son. And they repented of their sin and received the forgiveness of God. And not just that day in Jerusalem, but then other days more, every day more, 5,000 and women and children following the Lord and receiving of the Lord. Great revival took place. And revivals have continued since that day and will so more and more even in our day as we individually and as we encourage others to turn their eyes and look upon the one whom they have pierced. When we look at not what the Jewish leaders, not what the Sanhedrin, not what the Pharisees, not what the Sadducees, not what Caiaphas, not what the Romans did, but whom we have pierced. Whom our sins have pierced. That it was our choices, my choices, that caused him to leave heaven, to come down to this earth, to dwell among us, in this filthy planet, as a man, as a servant, and to suffer, to be stricken, to be pierced for my transgressions. And my choices, my thoughts, my motives, my attitudes, my selfishness, my greed, my lack of consideration, my unfaithfulness caused his suffering, caused his pain. When we look on him in that fashion, when we see that it wasn't the nails that held him there, but it was us that held him there, it was love that for us that held him there, and it was our sins that held him there when we see ourselves in the mirror of his glory, in the mirror of his love, when we see his com compassion and his mercy towards us, his love towards us, and we see our utter contempt for him and for others, we're putting ourselves before him, putting ourselves before others, when we see how that caused his pain, it will cause a mourning within us. It will cause a grieving within us. It will cause a repentance in us that will bring about the next step and the next stage. Chapter 13, verse 1. In that day, a fountain shall be opened for the house of David, for the inhabitants of Jerusalem, for sin and for uncleanness when we look on him and see him in that way 
and repent of our sins and confess our sins, a fountain opens up to us, a cleansing stream that washes away the sin, a fountain of blood poured out from him, water and blood pouring out from his side to wash our guilt away, to wash our past away, to wash the hold that Satan has had on us away so that we can be free and free indeed, cleansed and renewed and made white in his love and under his righteousness and made new as he is our creator he recreates us in a new into us a new mind a new heart new desires a new life one after his pattern one after his character in his image as he recreates us the creator god who put his spirit within man he puts his Holy Spirit into us and gives us victory over sin, gives us a new life to live in him. And so he came as the Messiah, he came as the suffering servant. He came as the king down to as a man, as lowly riding on a donkey as a prince, as a savior, as a son of Jehoshadak, as our companion, as our servant. As our friend. And then into heaven he was taken, where he resides as our Kohen, as our priest interceding in our behalf. And then he will return again in that role as Kohen judge. Chapter 9, verse 14, the Lord will be seen over them and his arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord God will blow the shofar and go with the whirlwind from the south. He will come again, he will come again this time, not as a suffering servant, but he will come again as a Kohen Gadol, as a priest sitting in his judgment seat with his crown, blowing his shofar, Announcing the time of judgment, young Kippur, the final call. He will blow the shofar, for the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the shofar of God. And the dead in Messiah will rise first, and we which are alive and remain will be caught up together with them to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall ever be with the Lord. He will send forth the whirlwind. He will send forth his angels to gather from one end of the earth to the other and gather us together to meet the Lord. He will come with the shofar. He will come with the shout. He will come with the sound to awaken the dead, to rise them out of their sleep, and to bring us up to heaven with him, where we will reign with him. And then, after being there for, well, also while he comes at that time, Zechariah 14, verse 3, the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. So as he comes to deliver us, he comes to take us with him. He comes to take the wheat and put it into his barn. He also comes and takes the tares and throws it into the fire to burn them. He comes as our deliverer, as the time of trouble such as never been seen since there's been a time on this earth. When the tribulation comes, he comes as our deliverer and he comes and he fights for us in that battle for us. He comes as that warrior priest for us and winning the battle in our behalf. He comes to slay the wicked and deliver us 
into the mansions he's preparing for us. And we reign with him there for a time, and then he comes back at the third coming, I'm sorry, while we're still there, not coming back yet, but then while we're still there in heaven, takes us to heaven, Zechariah 13, verse 6, one will say to him, what are these wounds in your hands? And he will answer, those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. As he resurrects the dead, as he takes people who follow him, who serve him, who surrender to him from one end of the earth to the other, takes us to meet him in the air and he takes us to heaven. And while we're there in heaven, there will be people there. People who are too young to understand. People there who are too young to know. People there who died before they were old enough to know. And they will look on him and they will say, where did you get those wounds in your hands? There will be those there who died before he came in the flesh, who did not understand what, what it would, exactly what would happen, how he would be the Lamb of God, how he would be slain, and how that slaying would actually take place in his hands. Even though King David prophesied in Psalm 22 that he'd be pierced in his hands and his feet. There'll be those resurrected who did not understand that or did not know that or even before that was written. And they will look on him, the Messiah, the man, the Lord, the one who came and dwelt in the flesh. And they will say, what? where did you get those wounds in your hands? He will keep those wounds as a reminder of us for all eternity, he will keep those wounds as our names engraved into the palms of his hands. So he'll never forget us, so he'll never forget what he did in our behalf, so that we'll never forget what he did in our behalf. And he will say, these wounds, these are the wounds I received in the house of my friend. Those whom I came for. Those whom I created. Those whom I put my spirit into. They sinned. And they caused these wounds. How the sins of humanity caused these wounds. My friends, my companions, my children caused these wounds in my hand. And then, at the end of that time, he will come again, this time as king, first as prophet, now as priest, third time as king. Zechariah 14, verse 4, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall split in two from east to west, making a very large valley. Half of it to the mountain shall move toward the north, and half of it toward the south. And again, we went into more detail when we did chapter 14. Again, you can see that on shalomadventure.com. But he comes as that king, splitting the mountain at that time, and only at that time. And then chapter 14, verse 9, And the Lord shall be king over all the earth. In that day it shall be, the Lord is one, and his name one. This unique one. This one who put his spirit into man. This one who is the Lord of hosts. The one who is the one who came as a man, as a branch, as a servant, as a shepherd, as a companion, 
as a priest, as a prophet, and who reigns forever and ever for all eternity as our King and our Lord, who is one in all these different ways. He's all these different roles, has all these different hats, but he is one, united together as one. He is one for us and he unites us together as one body, as one people, and unites us together with him that we are one with him. That we are united, we become united with him in heart, in mind, in body, in soul, in spirit, in love, in desire, in goals. United with him as one body, one family of God for all eternity, rejoicing together as he creates a new heavens and a new earth wherein dwells righteousness. So again, whichever area applies to you today or whatever you're needing from him today, you need to be your king and lead and guide and rule over you, to provide for you the river of life and the tree of life, to give you peace of mind, to give unity in your life, unity in your friendships, unity with him, to bring your life into harmony with his word. Or maybe any of the other areas we looked at, you need him to be in your behalf as a Kohen to grant you forgiveness. If you need him to be your friend and to be by your side, you need him to understand, someone to understand your troubles. He's there for all of these things and much more. And all of that was just from this one book. All those many hats. And he plays, has many more hats as well. But just from that one book. He can meet all of our needs from whatever we're going through today, whatever we'll go through the rest of our life. Because he is there for us. He is there as our friend, he's there as our judge, and he's there as our Lord. He's there as our prophet, our servant. He's there as our priest, our Kohen, and he's there as our king. He's here for us. He is there for you. So let's pray and let us take a hold of him. Again, whichever applies to you tonight, grab a hold of that hem, of that garment, of that Jewish man, and follow him because the Lord God is with him. And he'll lead you in the way everlasting. Our Lord and our God, King of the universe, we praise your name, Lord. We're thankful, Lord, that you are so miraculous, that you are so broad, that you meet our every need, that your characteristics are beyond number, your attributes are beyond our comprehension. And so, Lord, you're there to meet our every problem and to guide us at every moment for every day throughout our lives. Thank you for coming here. Thank you for being with us. Thank you for dwelling in our midst. Thank you for being raised up. Thank you for dying and being pierced for my wounds, for, for my sins. Thank you for providing that cleansing stream. Thank you for standing in my behalf and pleading my cause. Thank you for being my Redeemer, for being our Savior. Thank you for being our Advocate. 
Thank you that you are King, that you are Lord. We surrender all to you and we cast our pride in our ambitions and our crowns before you. Let us grab a hold of you and follow you in all of your paths. In Yeshua's holy name, amen.